You could live on that song for a little while, couldn't you? At the end of our text last week, the Apostle John declared to us in 1 John 5, second part of verse 4 and verse 5, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John then quickly is going to transition into why we should believe. This is not just faith and faith. Christian faith is not teaching us that just faith itself has power. The value of your faith is the reliability of the object of your faith. If you trust in a lie, such trust does you more harm than good. And all of us have had that kind of experience where we've trusted in someone or we've trusted in something that we counted on coming through and that person or that thing failed us. Well, that faith doesn't really do us any good. It actually misleads us. And so, it's really a fair question to ask, are we placing our faith actually where it belongs, this faith that overcomes the world? Why is it that it's so powerful? Is faith in Jesus Christ just some kind of leap in the dark? Or are there solid reasons for it? Well, the Old Testament prophets, Christ Himself and His apostles are unanimous in their answer. This is no leap in the dark. The evidence is so compelling that actually the harder task would be to explain why you wouldn't believe it. The Old Testament law required two or three first-hand witnesses to establish testimony in court, and John picks up on that tradition. Eight times in seven verses, the verses we're going to look at this morning, John will use the terms testify or testimony. We get the word martyr from the word that he uses, because those who were witnesses who testified regarding Jesus Christ, who gave firsthand testimony regarding Him, were so convinced of the truth of their testimony that they were willing to die rather than to recant. We call them martyrs, and their numbers are growing even to this day. Now, what is striking about what John presents in 1 John 5, 6 through 12, is that the witness he calls to the stand is not a mere mortal, but God Himself. And so, we want to focus this morning on this theme, God's testimony regarding Jesus Christ. Follow with me as I read verses 6 through 12 of 1 John 5. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. By the blood, by the water only, but by the water, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, 
the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, for he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. As we consider this text this morning, we'll look at it under these three headings. First, in verses 6 through 8, the threefold testimony of the historical record. The threefold testimony of the historical record. Second, in verses 9 and 10, the supreme integrity of God as witness. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, the divine promise of eternal life through the Son. Before we go any further, let's talk to God that He might speak to us through His Word. Our Father now, as a mere mortal, but a born-again child of the King, I come to speak the words of God to Your people, to those who have believed, as well as to those who have not yet believed. And my prayer this morning, dear Father, is that You would, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, testify to the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done, and that You might awaken in darkened hearts through the light of the gospel faith in the Lord Jesus and grant life. I pray this for your glory and for the glory of your only begotten Son, our Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the good shepherd of the sheep. God, gather your sheep this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. First, consider with me that John presents to us the threefold testimony of the historical record. Look at verse 6 again. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. This is He who came by water and blood. That seems to be a well-understood shorthand statement to John's first-century readers, but to us it seems a little cryptic. What do you mean by three witnesses, the water and the blood? Some have, some have speculated that perhaps He's referring to the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some recall that when Christ's side was pierced by the Roman soldier that, that outflowed water and blood. But what fits this context best is that this refers to two significant historical events that testified to the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And that is His baptism 
and his crucifixion. That really sums up his mission and his uh, redemptive um, ministry to the world. Both events set him apart as a unique Son of God and as the promised Savior. You recall at his baptism, according to Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Matthew records it, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was not the only one who saw that, but John the Baptist bore record that the Spirit came on him this way. This was uh, something that, that was established testimony of God to the reality of who Jesus is. That's when Jesus began His public ministry. And then at the crucifixion, recall what was recorded about the events there in Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, and that word behold is the idea of attention or look. This is actually happening. Pay attention. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain, it's a huge curtain, four inches thick, woven. I want to say, I'm just guessing, I didn't put it in my notes. I can't, I, I can't remember for sure, but I want to say about 30 feet tall. It was, it was very tall curtain, like no, nobody's up there just, you know, tearing um, a bit of tissue paper. This is impossible to happen from top to bottom unless God is doing it. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So this whole um, Passion Week culminating the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, three days in the tomb, three days and nights in the tomb, then He rises again, all this uh, captured together at the end of His ministry. And when the centurion and those who were with Him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So here you have a Roman soldier, a centurion, the, really the backbone of the Roman uh, army, uh, highly trusted uh, men, and he sees what's actually happening. He comes to the conclusion, I mean, think about it. He comes to the conclusion that someone that's being executed as a criminal on a cross, the most painful form of execution, that he is actually the Son of God. The centurion's not crazy. The events that surrounded that event testified to him that this was an individual like none other, the actual Son of God. Well, when John is ministering, the early stages of the Gnostic heresy were already influencing people. The Gnostics took Greek philosophy that essentially said spirit is good and matter is bad, and said, therefore, God can't dirty His hands with matter, the material world. And so they tried to create a, a big divorce. We still are influenced some by this thinking uh, when we divide, for instance, white-collar jobs from blue-collar jobs, okay? That, in other words, if you use your mind to make your living, you're somehow superior to those that are using their hands as if they don't have to use their minds too, okay? Um, the reality, all work done for God, empowered by God, is good work. But, but just to so show this kind of thinking still influences us, this Gnostic heresy, though, developed. 
and it affected the way people looked at Jesus Christ. There was one version of Gnosticism that declared that Jesus only appeared to be human, but that He was actually only a spirit. Uh, a later contemporary of John, a Gnostic heretic named Serenthus, taught that Jesus was just a normal human being born through the natural union of Joseph and Mary, and that the Spirit of Christ descended on the man Jesus at His baptism, but left Him before His crucifixion. John declares, no. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the God, the Son, and He was so before His baptism. The baptism only testified to that reality, and He remained so. He remained Jesus, the Christ, throughout His ministry, culminating in a crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. It's Jesus Christ all the way through. And the Spirit of truth adds His witness. His testimony agrees with that of the historical events of John's baptism and crucifixion. He visibly descended on Jesus at His baptism like a job. John the Baptist bore witness to that. Jesus was the anointed one, that is, He was anointed with the Holy Spirit of God without measure. It was the Spirit of God that led Him, for instance, into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the Spirit of God that brought Him back and that empowered Him throughout His ministry, that enabled Him to do the miracles that He did, even though He was fully human being. It was the Spirit of God involved even in His resurrection. Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Spirit's involved in the resurrection. The Spirit then went on to testify to the world of their sin of not believing in Jesus, testified to the world of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit empowered the early church to be bold in their witness to the gospel of Christ, as the book of Acts records. He testifies not only externally to the true identity and mission of Jesus Christ, as Christianity spread from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the world, Rome, but also He testified internally within the hearts of those that believe, leading them to believe in Jesus Christ and transforming them from the inside out. Jesus, Jesus called Him the Spirit of truth, and John seems to be recalling that when he says in verse 6, the Spirit is the truth. Jesus said when He promised that the Holy Spirit would come to empower His disciples, John 16, He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. By the way, that is not a promise that every believer will always get their doctrine right. I hear this quoted a lot. This was given to the apostles. This is part of what guarantees that the doctrine in the New Testament is right. He, he, think about it, there was no New Testament book written until about A.D. 48, at least 18 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. It was an oral testimony through the preaching of the apostles, but before they died, they started writing it down. And, and so you have the writing of the New Testament from about A.D. 48 to the mid-90s, John is writing, um, and, and Christ guarantees that He will call to remembrance what He's taught and will help them interpret it as He ought to. So, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit came, and we have that record in the book of Acts, and we see the profound effect that actually extends to this very day. Today we sit and worship Jesus Christ in the uttermost parts of the earth, what were the uttermost parts of the earth at the time that Jesus gave the command to spread the word in the Great Commission. So here you have this threefold witness. You have the historical event of his baptism, of his crucifixion, and you also have the Spirit of God with ongoing testimony uh, to the truth of who Jesus is. Well, Gnosticism has not been the only false teaching that rejected God's testimony regarding Jesus Christ. In the second century, the heretic named Marcion taught that God, the God of the Old Testament, was not the same God who sent Jesus into the world in the New Testament. In the third century, Arius of Alexandria taught that the Son of God was not eternal, but was just a created being. This is the same falsehood that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. In the seventh century, Islam arises, declaring that Jesus did not die on the cross and was not the Son of God. Some Muslims teach they that actually Judas was the one that died on the cross and not Jesus, that Jesus was actually taken to heaven. One advantage uh, with witnessing to those that are Muslims is that they do believe that Jesus did miracles, they do believe that He didn't commit sins, and they do believe that He ascended to the Father. But somehow Muhammad's greater than He. You have some basis. They, They say they believe the Gospels. They say they believe the Psalms. Uh, They say they believe even uh, the Pentateuch. Um, They just say it's been corrupted. But it gives you some basis to actually witness to your friends that are Mormons pointing them to Jesus Christ. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was the spirit brother of Satan in heaven, was born as a normal human, and eventually became a god, and that he forged the way so that we can achieve the same status of deity ourselves with our own planets over which we will rule. Liberal Christianity teaches that Jesus was nothing more than a good man whose example we should follow. J.D. Crowley summarizes these in his commentary on 1 John. But this is just to say that you've got to stick to what the testimony is, the threefold witness. Any teaching that denies the real humanity of Jesus Christ or the real deity of Jesus Christ or that He is the promised Savior King, the Messiah that the prophets talked about, or that His redemption on the cross was not effective, or that teaches that that His physical resurrection from the dead didn't happen, rejects the established historical testimony of the water, the blood, and the Spirit. They all agree you cannot pick and choose. To reject this threefold witness is to remove any hope that we have of salvation from sin and death through Christ Jesus. We needed the God-man. We needed a perfect Savior who could take our place on the cross. We needed a Savior who could die and then conquer death for us. And that is exactly who Jesus Christ is. That's exactly what He did. The historical testimony bears it out, and the Holy Spirit of God continues to testify to this reality. So Christianity, it's not just faith in an idea. It's, it's not just a philosophy. It's, it's not just a code 
of ethics, of, of doing good. It's not just a set of ceremonies. Does Christianity provide ideas? Yes. Um, is there a biblical worldview philosophy that, that it would teach us? Yes. Are, are there ethical things that we should do on the basis of what God teaches? Yes. Are, are there ceremonies, however uh, plain or elaborate, that we might engage in the worship of Him? Yes, but that is not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He rose again. He's coming back. And all who believe in Him have eternal life. That's Christianity. We want to hold to that. Faith in Jesus Christ is verified by historical events and by firsthand testimony. So, if you refuse to believe this testimony, what will you do with it? The evidence has been presented. You know, you don't go into a court of law and, and say, well, there's no evidence after you've just dumped all the evidence. What will we do with the evidence? In the face of all this evidence, are you willing to engage in the high-stakes gamble that all of it's untrue and to stake your very life and destiny on it? God has given us ample reason to believe, and that leads us to the supreme integrity of God as witness. Because ultimately, this is the testimony of God. He's using historical events. He's intervening in history. He's testifying through us, to us through His Son, um, through the prophets, through the apostles. Um, but this is the testimony of God, not just of men. And again, this is, this is essence of Christianity. Christianity is a revealed religion. God has revealed it to us. It's not that we get to make it up. In fact, today it's fashionable, they call it progressive Christianity, to say we get to make it up to fit the times. That as we go to different periods of history, you can change it so that it fits the times. Well, no, this is a revealed religion. This is given to us by God, and you don't tamper with the testimony that God has given. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. If we would accept the testimony of three human witnesses in a court of law, John is making this point, how much more would you receive the testimony of God Himself? C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, talks about the fact that really nearly everything that we believe, we believe on the basis of testimony. Chances are, if you went to school and learned anything about English history, maybe, just maybe, you remember that there was a, an amazing event in 1588 when the Spanish Armada, most powerful navy in the world at the time, uh, was destroyed in a storm on its way to take England. 1588. How many of you were there? How do you know it even happened? Well, we know that it happened because of reliable eyewitnesses who were there that testified to it. We believe it on the basis of testimony. Now, we've learned perhaps the hard way today that news isn't always news, and I have an idea that someday we're going to find out that history was a little bit different than what we thought it was because we're dependent 
We're dependent on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. But, you know, how do we know that George Washington ever existed? How do we know that? You say, well, there's a painting of him. I can make a painting of anybody. I can make it up, right? Uh, you can build a building. You, you can do all kinds. Okay, we believe what we believe on the basis of testimony. So it's really a question of, of how reliable the witnesses are. So here is the witness. How reliable is the testimony of God. He testified, actually, audibly to Jesus as his son at his baptism. We've already read about that. He also did so at the Mount of Transfiguration, and he also did so shortly before his crucifixion. Matthew 17, 5, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, that is Peter, uh, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter had the idea because he saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking together, talking about his upcoming crucifixion, his exodus, that, hey, let's build three tents here, tabernacles. Let's set up shop. This is, this is the way to launch the Messianic kingdom. And basically God says, No, Peter. Listen to Jesus. This is my Son. He'll tell you what to do. In John 12, 27 to 29, Jesus, in this last Passion Week, says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And then Jesus himself takes pains to talk quite a bit about the witness to who he is and that the Father himself is testifying to it. In John 5, verse 31 and following, he's tapping into Jewish custom of having to have more than one witness. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. You can't establish it just on the basis of one witness. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, speaking to John about John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. So lots of people ended up putting faith in Jesus Christ because of the testimony of John. In fact, some of Christ's own uh, disciples who followed him were initially disciples of John. But he has a greater witness than that. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is the purpose of his miracles. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen. So what are we talking about? He's talking to men who weren't at the baptism, men that, and he's not gotten to the the transfiguration or, or crucifixion yet. What is he talking about then? You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures. Okay, now we know where the Father has testified, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And later he's going to say, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. God has testified. Think about, think about the extent to which God has testified. 
When, when you look at how Christocentric, how Christ-centered the Old Testament is, prophesying this one that should come, and you look at the fact that Jesus fulfills those prophecies, and you look at the fact that the apostles preached how those two matched up for all these centuries, right to this very day, you look at the testimony that God has been bearing to the world. Why would you shut your heart and your mind to what God is saying? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. To believe in the Son of God is literally the idea of believing into the Son of God. It's, it's a, a present, ongoing activity And it's more than just believing about Jesus, it's believing into Jesus. I like to describe saving faith as getting into the boat, not just believing there is a boat, okay? So you're you're trusting, you're transferring your trust, you're leaning the weight of your trust on Jesus to rescue you. Well, a person who does that has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit who, by the way, is the one who convinces us that these things are so, the one who gives us life, he indwells every true believer in Christ, convincing him and and then coming into him so that his life begins to change. The power of the Spirit at work in a believer's life testifies to the truth of the message. And there are literally millions of transformed lives over 20 centuries that testify to the power of this gospel, to the reality that when you trust in Jesus, He rescues you and changes you, and He does it through the Spirit. Not to believe in Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God, is not to believe in God himself because he has testified about who Jesus is. If you refuse to believe, you are calling God a liar. You see, unbelief is not just a tragedy. It's a sin against God that dishonors him and his character. Satan is the father of lies, not God. A God who is a liar is not God. He's not the God of the Bible. So think about it. When you, if you reject this testimony, you call God a liar, you essentially treat God as Satan. Because if this is a lie... This is like the biggest lie ever. The biggest lie ever. The biggest fraud ever. God is no liar. I remember seeing an interview. It's actually on um, a movie at the beginning of the 2000s called Expelled. An interview with Richard Dawkins. And the question is posed, what if you die, and he did, 
What if you die and you're facing God and God says, why did you write all those awful things about me and why, why did you not ever believe in me? And Dawkins' answer was, I would say to him, why did you keep yourself so hidden? God has not kept himself hidden. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right down to the cellular level, RNA, DNA tells you that some incredibly intelligent being put a message sequence in there that dictates everything you can do and everything you are. Nobody can explain how it all happened. They keep trying. It just doesn't make sense. That's just natural revelation. And to that, God has spoken. What else could God do? Have you ever looked at how thick a Bible is? Like you you wanted him to say more? Think, think about the centuries of testimony, 1,500 years in the making, over 40 different authors from different walks of life testifying to the same gospel. Two millennia of testimony of lives transformed by Jesus Christ. What else could you want? The testimony of God is well established. Number three, the divine promise of eternal life through the Son. In other words, it is a big deal whether I receive this testimony or not. You know, some things, you know, you hear people debate about things, you know, they're going back and forth, you know, politics, um, fake news or real news. Like you say, well, I don't know. It's my head spinning. I don't know. What difference does it make? I'm going to go work in my garden. This is not that kind of thing. This is life and death. This is forever. Either it's true or it's not. But it's a big deal if it's true or it's not. And there's a divine promise of eternal life through His Son. That's the testimony. Verse 11, this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, here's the thing. This is not just a historical debate. It's, you know, it's, it's not like a debate about did, did George Washington chop down the cherry tree or not? Um, or, or was a particular president a good guy or a bad guy? This has to do with the testimony has to do not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus came to do and what he's giving to us if we will receive him. It is impossible to have eternal life apart from having the Son of God through your faith in him. It is impossible not to have eternal life if you have the Son. So all that we might worry about and, and wondering where we stand. If you have Jesus, if you're trusting in Him, you're going to be okay. You're safe. That's what salvation means. You're safe. 
What is clear here is that no one achieves eternal life by his own effort and merits. It is a gift. God gave us eternal life. This undeserved gift is yours only through Christ. Further, it's not just a someday gift. If, if you have Christ now, you have eternal life now. God's life has been given to you already. It's your present possession. It's already at work in you through the Spirit of God, transforming you at the core of who you are, flowing out to all you say and do. Your disposition is different. What you love and what you hate is different. This life in you will never end. It's eternal because it's God's life in you, and God is eternal. You are safe forever. So how do you lay hold of this eternal life? You have to receive the testimony, the witness of God to who Jesus Christ is and what He came to do. And so here's the progression of thought. You have testimony or witness. There, there are two ways of, of getting at the same word. That leads to belief, and by that, not just believing about, putting faith in Christ, and that leads to life. That's the sequence. John Stott puts it this way, the way to life is faith. He's coming from the opposite side. The way to life is faith, and the way to faith is testimony. Paul put it this way in Romans 10. So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, how will they hear if nobody proclaims it to them? And how will they tell them unless they're sent? God's testimony of Jesus Christ is clear. But do you recall that they, before he went back to heaven, he turned over the responsibility of passing on that testimony to his followers? He said, you are my witnesses. In other words, the testimony that you've received from God, now take that testimony and you bear witness to it. That's the plan. He told them, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on you to empower you to do this. And that's what they did. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people believed the testimony. And thousands and tens of thousands since have believed. You are my witnesses. Your job in the earth until Jesus comes or until you go to him is to testify what God has testified, to bear witness. If you have believed and you have the Spirit of God in you, you are experiencing the reality, the reality of what God has promised. You have firsthand experience that now you need to share, I need to share to those around me. Well, how do you do that? You take them to the historical evidence. That means that you've built some kind of platform with them. You have some kind of relationship. You have some kind of street cred with them where you can actually have a discussion. You take them to the evidence. You take them to the water, the blood, the spirit. You, you talk to them about how God has made himself known. You let the testimony, you, you take the testimony and you, of God and you pass it on to them. 
And then you pray that the Holy Spirit then convinces them that that testimony is true just as He did in your heart. That's how it works. And that's our job. We call it the Great Commission. And it's from Jesus Himself. And He promises us, Behold, I am with you all the days, even to the consummation of the age, while you carry this out. This testimony of God, it's our job as a church to to hold up that testimony for the world to see, to bear witness to his testimony regarding Jesus Christ, the threefold testimony of the historical record, to talk about the supreme integrity of God as witness, and talk about the divine promise of eternal life through His Son. God help us to do it. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the testimony that You have borne. Lord, we are frail. We get confused. We are fearful. Sometimes, God, we even, we even doubt we struggle with, with doubting what you have, you have said or whether it was you that said it. God, solidify our faith in who you are and what you have testified to. Make our faith strong in Jesus, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And Lord, help us by the power of the Spirit to bear testimony to those we know and those we meet to to take the testimony of God and pass it on to them. God, this is how they come to faith if they hear the testimony. So God, make make us those that are faithful guardians of the truth, faithful proclaimers of the truth, faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, Son of God, in whom we have found life eternal. In his name we pray, amen.